turned up at the station. It was the end of the day. It was the first week in March. It was freezing cold, but clear. It was beautiful, clear days in the winter in Japan. And it was freezing cold. I got to Mashiko. I got off the train. I thought, right, this is my life here now. This is where I'm going to live. So there's hundreds of school kids, and I, and I thought, well, they're not going to they're not going to know of a five star hotel in Mashiko where I can stay with a you know jacuzzi and hot and cold running water because they were all staring at me going bloody hell you're ugly <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I uh, I needed some common sense so I, went, I, got, I got hold of this lady there who was a, a farmer's wife she looked at me as if I was you know b- b- really was Medusa anyway she came round and she got her son and we, we, we had a bit of a conversation and I said I want to stay somewhere and he just took me to the Ryokan a Ryokan is an inn he works in the pottery, and it that that's it. That's how that's how things kick off. My name is William Plumtree. I'm a potter. I'm uh, 61 years old, and I live in Witherslack, in South Cumbria, which is just within the national park where I've made pottery for 25 years, and previously in the middle of the lakes at Patterdale. Uh, I trained in Japan and I went to art school, and it has been my life ever since, and I enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Is that okay? Beautiful. That, yeah, 10 out of 10, William. I'm gonna take my glasses off, because the glasses are giving me a headache, because the headphones are well, pushing I'm... them onto my temples. Can you believe it? But you've also got a crack in them, William. How do you cope? Am I? Yeah, I have. You're right. <laughs> Have you seen that? I can see. I have yeah, got a crack like, in it. How's he? How's it's he? Like, how's he coping with this? Now, is he making these pots with his glasses are cracked? <laughs> there won't be a cent. One, not one of them will be round. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining me on the Proper Job Podcast. So, Will or William? William. I don't mind, but William is William sounds better. So let's start right at the beginning, William. How were you within the structure of school? Did you did you fit in? I fitted in in my department. And what was your department? Well, that was exactly it. it was, that was my department. I think a way to answer that is uh, an idea of where I was going was that there were, when I got to senior school, there were two choices. Either you could either join the uh, Army Cadet Force or you could go and do social services. And I went to do social services because I didn't like the army cadet force and I was never very good with discipline. So for that reason, I probably didn't fit into the ranks of, of school very easily overall. Um, but when I went to school at eight years old uh, and was sent off to school, it was all quite draconian. You know, it was a long time ago. And uh, there were some strange ideas. But anyway, that was then and we are now. And uh, I, uh, I, I, um, I did and I didn't fit in. I, d- I mean, I, I, I didn't know that at the time that I was um, disliking it because I didn't know any different. You know, I had nothing, obviously, I had nothing to compare it with. It, what, what kind of pressures were there in terms of getting a job? Um, You've just spoken there about 
coming across of like this anti-establishment was was the pressure of getting a normal nine to five job not from when in my family there wasn't no no not at all so there was you do what you want to do not not anything else you do what you want to do up to a point my parents were very they they were quite sort of libertarian in that way i have to say and i, I mean i'm grateful for that my father was a farmer okay and my mother was her was a was a, her, my mother looked after him basically sure but she did a lot my she did a host of other things as well um uh, least of all play the piano she was uh, a gifted pianist studied at the uh, royal academy right three years there to be a trained classical pianist um and uh they were um, pretty relaxed about getting a job uh, and um, I, uh, I was under no pressure. So I went off to art school when I left school. I went to, I went to, eventually I went to art school. Where did that idea come from? I came from making pots and it came from making pots at school. Because the one thing I was, the one thing I was um, uh, able to do at senior school was make pots. So there's a pottery class. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I did a lot of pottery classes, and I had a I had a teacher there who was uh, well known in pottery, uh, called Ian Gregory. He's a potter down in Dorset, where I was at school, and he made it uh, interesting, and he made it fun. There wasn't a sort of um, credit score with doing pottery. You could just do pottery. You know, you weren't on airing on the side of. Uh, uh, 30 out of 20 for an essay or indeed 5 out of 20 for an essay which would have been my <laughs> score but you, the pottery was a great was a great uh, fallback it was and I really enjoyed it actually and the art and, 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 and the art the drawing and the painting side but but particularly the pottery so where did you go to art school I went to Chelsea art school and did a three-year design course in ceramics up in when when they were up in Lime Grove, in uh, up in Shepherd's Bush, and I went there in um, uh, Crikey, uh, nineteen eighty, for three years. Uh, we did we did a ceramic design, and I think it was called ceramic design and technology, but with hindsight, it was a long way from what I needed to do, what I want, what I wanted to do. Um, it was uh, it was really a stepping stone. It was a case of finding out what I I didn't want to do, in order to continue down that path. Yeah. So, I um, came out of art school, and I did um, I did some painting. I painted for about fifteen months. I used to paint landscape, and I used to paint still life, and I did some ceramics, and then I thought. Hang on, this is this is uh, this isn't really satisfactory. Uh, I got to stop this. I got to do something else. I'll go back to the pottery full time, um, and I'd read a bit about Bernard Leach, quite a bit about Bernard Leach, and in the conversation of uh, learning about Bernard Leach, the name Shoji Hamada had popped up, and uh, I was living in a cottage, and. Uh, uh, at this point of the uh, pr- the pressure of getting a job was um, it was uh, comes into play. So I sat down one day 
with my mother and father. And I said, you know what, uh, I think I'll go and live in Japan. And they went, right, okay. Well, in 1983, 1982, that sort of throwaway comment was quite, quite, you know, quite a long way down the road. You know, it wasn't like getting a nine to five job for obvious reasons. My family didn't know anybody who lived in Japan, um, but they were soon to find out. So I did. I, I, I got fed up with everything. I got, tried to get a job in England. I tried to get a job in potteries. I tried to get a job down in the West Country. And, and no one wanted to give me a job as a, an apprentice potter. And I ended up talking to a man called Seth Kaji, who was the son of Michael. And he said, I, I can't help you. But he said, I wish you well. Anyway. About six months later, after I'd seen him, I was sitting in my cottage with this large suitcase packed, ready to go the next day. And uh, <clears throat> the telephone rang, Seth Kaji. And he said, look, he said, come back. He said, I, I, we'll, we'll work something out. And he said, I'll help you, you know, you can work here and do some work throwing. I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I said, I'm going away tomorrow to Japan. And he just turned around and he said, you'll have a far better time in Japan than you'll ever have here. He said, get out there. And I just thought, that's it. That's, that's what I'm looking for. And I wanted, you know, I, I wanted that, um, that sort of endorsement. Yeah. And I thought, I'm, I'm okay now. I can go. I mean, I didn't, not, not, not to that extent, but I, um, I mean, I, I didn't think about the consequences of um, going out to Japan on a single ticket. Um, anyway, I made a few inquiries. I wrote 72 grant-making applications, 72 letters. I remember I had 12 replies and one of them was positive and that came to nothing. And at the end of that, I thought I was given the grant making book for grants and applications to students. There's nothing, oh, nothing was nothing technical in those days. You had to sit down with a book the size of, uh, of, a, of a, a wisdom and you had to read it. It was crazy. It took me weeks to find out what, <laughs> it took me weeks to find out what, what, what chapter of the book pottery came under. And then once you got a chapter of the book, Pottery came under, of the 8,000 grant-making organisations, three of them would do pottery. You had to, it was crazy. And I spent weeks and weeks and weeks writing to all these people. And they all wrote back and said, was this? you've missed the boat, chum, you know, all the money's gone. Wow. And uh, I, I didn't know about things like Daiwa Foundations or scholarships or anything like that. You know, it was... It was um, and eventually I just thought, I'm going. I'm fed up with this. I'll just go on my own. So that's what I did. And then about a week before I, go, I went, I met someone and he said, I live in Tokyo. You better come and see me. And I did. And he gave me the keys and to, to a little apartment he had. He said, make yourself at home. I'm going skiing. I'm away for the whole week, so you're on your own. And that was it. 
So you must have thought at that time, like everything was kind of clicking into place of of going to Japan, but obviously we're 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 before the age of emails and 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 the internet and all those kind of things. So how, how, did you just get this ticket and turn up at the airport? And you, so you, you the week before it all fitted into place that you had a place to stay, but before that. You were kind of like, where? What am I going to do? Yeah, no, I did. I was, I was winging it, as they say. I was winging it. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was going to go to a youth hostel, but I had a, such an enormous suitcase that wouldn't have worked. I couldn't have been lugging <laughs> the suitcase around Tokyo. It was the size of a, of a trunk. You know, it was anyone. If you'd seen it, you saw he's off on the grand tour. This lad, <laughs> you know, he's going around Europe. <laughs> with coach and horses, I, I, it was it was I was wholly unprepared, but I wasn't. I mean, I didn't know what I, you can't prepare for what you don't know. So, no, Nick, Nick uh, um, was a, was was a godsend, but he 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 only went to um, as far as uh, accommodation. You know, he only went so far down the platform. The, mm. the rest of the platform was for me to sort out. So it took me about a week to get the, the underground map the right way up in Tokyo. And once <laughs> I'd worked that out, because, you know, there was no nothing digital, nothing digital. No. Or translated, uh, I expect. No, no, there was no Romaji. There was no street names in, the, in those days and no, no, nothing written in Romaji. So, so, so you, and, and the worst thing was if you ever got into a taxi, Taxis were seriously renowned for taking you 400 miles in the opposite direction. You got in the back of a taxi, you, you really got in there at your peril. And if you got out and shut the door, then they got really angry because all the doors on the, Japanese, on the Tokyo taxis were electric. So as you get out, the door shuts automatically. <laughs> and what all the foreigners used to do, the gaijins would get out and slam the door. And the taxi driver sitting there ringing in his ears as he was trying to listen to the racing. And that was my experience of Japanese taxi drivers. So, no, I mean, I was going to where Bernard Leach went to, which was Mashiko Machi in Tochigi Ken. And I knew nothing about how to get there or anything about where to stay or what I was going to do for a job. But you had an address then. No, I had nothing. You've landed in Japan and you, mm. you've gone to the apartment. Yeah, yeah, I got his. Oh, I went to Nick's apartment. Yeah. What was your research technique to find out what the next move was going to be, William? I went to Wayno Station, which is a huge, massive station at the top of uh, Tokyo, which is uh, the station's about the size of uh, Birmingham itself. It's a huge place. And I thought I want to get a train to Mashiko. And everyone went, where the bloody hell is Mashiko? I said, well, it's in, oh, it said it's in Tochigi. It's up there, blimey. You know, it was, uh, it was real hick country, as we say, you know, hick. It was proper, proper out there in the sticks. Anyway, I found out that it was going to take me three, three and a half, four hours on a local train. So I went home, back to the flat. I got organised to go up there. I went to exhibitions, Japanese National Museum. I saw the most incredible... The first two, three days I was there, 
I saw the most amazing exhibition on um, on on Kyushu porcelain, and it was the most. It was in an enormous uh, show at the Wayno in the National Museum, and it was a sort of brilliant sort of kicking off point. It was, it was fantastic, and I looked at it and I thought, here we go. This this is what I've come to see. This is what I I want to you know indulge in. And I went to exhibitions and I got around Tokyo and yeah, I, I, I dropped off a cliff. I did. I literally went over the edge. You, you're in free fall. Unless you're on a, I mean, you know, if you were in a Western, uh, a, a banking situation where they pick you up and move you around and, and, uh, and, um, accommodate you, you if you went out into, into uh, the middle of Japan, you were on your own. And, and, that's, and that was it. And so off I went to Mashiko on the local train. And was the idea then to sort of like take your bags, you know, it's a free, you say it's a three and a half, four hour train journey. Mm -hmm. um, what was you, <laughs> were you just going to turn up, knock on the door and see what happened? Turned up at the station. It was the end of the day, it was the first week in March, it was freezing cold, but clear, it was beautiful, clear days in the winter in Japan. And it was freezing cold, I got to Mashiko, I got off the train, I thought, right, this is my life, here, now, this is where I'm going to live. So there's hundreds of school kids, and I, and I thought, well, they're not going to they're not going to know of a five star hotel in Mashiko where I can stay with a you know <laughs> jacuzzi and hot and cold running water because they were all staring at me, going, "Bloody hell, you're ugly." I uh, <laughs> I uh, I needed some common sense, so I, went, I got hold of this lady there who was a farmer's wife. She looked at me as if I was you know really was. Medusa. Anyway, she came round and she got her son and we, we, we had a bit of a conversation and I said, I want to stay somewhere. And he just took me to the Ryokan. A Ryokan is an inn. He works in the pottery. And it, that, that's it. That's how, that's how things kick off. So I, he dropped me off and he never said a word and he, he, he drove like a maniac and we were sitting in the cab of, you know, those tiny, tiny little trucks that sort of deliver tofu and you know noodles and stuff like that zippy zippy round we were sat in the front of this and there wasn't room with my bags there wasn't room to swing a cat you know I was right on top of him and I'd only met him two seconds earlier and we got got you know he dropped me off at this place the next day ah no I tell a lie Takashi Yasuda Japanese potter Takashi uh, 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 lives in, uh, I don't know where he lives now, but then he lived in Devon. He'd given me a telephone number of a lady of a, of a potter in Mashiko to call her just to say hi. And the next day I rang her up and I said, I'm here. Well, she didn't speak any English. So, so she spoke Japanese and I spoke English. And eventually, she, we met, and she said, um, I, can't, I can't help you, but I know a man who might. And I went to his workshop, and I walked in, 
and this was the first day there. And he had an Australian girl there called Susan, who I got to know very, very well. And he said, yeah, you can work here too. He said, open that, get in the corner and you can have that wheel. And I said, okay. And he said, yeah, he can, he can do as long as he wants, six months, whatever, 12 months. And it was all very sort of easy come, easy go. And um, he said, you can come and live here with, in the workshop. Um, you, you can, you can uh, sleep upstairs in the exhibition room and you can have a futon and off you go. And um, I met Susan and I met a couple of other Australians. There were lots of Australians there. I say lots in Mashiko. Mashiko has about 300 and 350 potters. Oh, wow, okay. It's a town, a town, town uh, Mashiko's about the size of, um, Oh, uh, less than the size of Kendall. Right. It's tiny. Okay. It's tiny. And there were 350 potters there. And um, I suppose in total about a dozen foreign students at one time, mostly Australian and American. And off we went. I started work there and he gave me a lump of clay. So get your clay. And he sat on the wheel and he shoved, gave me a egg cup, a tiny little cup. And he said, make that. Just get on and throw it. But this was all in Japanese. This was all in sort of, you know, quite a lot of sign language and not much, not much talking actually, more pointing. Just get on with it. You know, there, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't any point in explanation. No, I wasn't speaking any Japanese. I did it for three months before I went. I knew what I knew the days of the week, uh -huh. but I didn't know what, what what stoneware clay was, which is what I should have been learning. I knew how to say Tuesday, but that wasn't any help. <laughs> he said, "I'll come back later and see you." I thought, right, okay. So I thought later, you know, later he might come back later, two o'clock, three o'clock. He didn't come back for three weeks, <laughs> so I thought, right, okay. I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing. So after three weeks, I had a fair idea about how to make this coffee cup, this, this tea cup. I had a real pain in my knee because I was kicking a Japanese kick wheel. It's very, very, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. It's not a momentum wheel. So you're kicking it at the same time as you're throwing. So you have to keep your upper body still and your left leg is kicking and you, you start rocking around and you, you, you get clay everywhere and your left knee, which is your kicking knee, gets a pain in it like you've never had a pain before. Anyway, that's how I started. So different technique obviously to the UK. How were you with your The your clay, confidence? the wheel goes round the wrong way. <laughs> so in the, in Japan, they're throwing clockwise. Right. And here, we're anti-clockwise. Were you confident with your ability, though, when you went? Wouldn't have mattered if I was or I wasn't. What about your because personality, then? Were you, were you confident in how you came across? 
were you a confident person? It was such an open canvas. It didn't really matter about my ability and it didn't really matter about my confidence. The one thing I had to do was adjust to a way of life. I could have gone in there with eight PhDs in throwing and they would have said, this is where you start. It's called the beginning. And this is where you're gonna start. We're not interested in PhDs. Uh -huh. And we're not interested in what you know. We've been doing this for 10,000 years. And this is what you're going to do. And by the way, the wheel goes round the other way. And that's it. Just embrace it. Sure. That's what, they weren't interested in what I knew. Because what I knew wasn't, wasn't worth anything, you know. So how did you feel during that time then? Did you feel out of depth? Or, or were you like your kind of person no. who just got on with it? No, I just got on with it because I had a sort of, I thought, I thought the, the throwing of the pots was the easy bit. Everything else was quite complicated. Uh -huh. So, for instance, you know, if you went into the supermarket and you, you, you came out with, you know, something that looked like shampoo, it was washing power, liquid for the dish washing machine. You could either rub that in or you could put something on your toothbrush that was toothpaste. It wasn't, it was mayonnaise. <laughs> and it, you went, you know, well, you wanted to get a driving license and they look at you like, well, you, you know, that's gonna take time. And it, it was the other, it was the day-to-day -day life, you know, what life throws at you, the technicalities yeah. were, the, were the difficult bits. Um, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was familiar with throwing pots. I could throw pots, but the, it's, and it, it, it's called culture shock. Yeah. That, that, that was the key to it, yeah. you know, and, and, that, and that was, that was difficult. So how long were you at this place for then? Six months, nearly six months. And I got, I got, I did six months of them and I thought, I can't, I can't. I can't go on here forever. My left leg's about to drop off. I'm throwing the same teacup. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, throwing a teacup for six months in Japan is, is nothing. You know, you, you can throw a teacup in Japan for three years and then they'll say, okay, yeah, why don't you do something else today? You know, <laughs> sweep the floor instead. Uh -huh. that, that's, a, that's I, I thought I wanted a change. And this, I'd met a few people by then, and um, I'd taken up karate. I did that twice a week. I needed to do something that stopped me sort of stiffening up, and because it, I was sitting in a very awkward position on the potter's wheel, I wasn't used to it. I wasn't the right shape. I've got long legs and a short back, and they had a long back and short legs. They were perfect. You know, they, they could sit there for days. And I was in agony, so I went and did karate. And that was sort of, that was amazing. That was incredible. Tuesdays and Saturdays for uh, uh, an hour and a half on, a, on the evening. And uh, I used to go up to the school record and, and do it. And uh, there were, 50 people in this room 
with this huge gym and 90% and of them were under the age of 15 and they used to be screaming at the top of their voices, going up and down, doing the cutter, doing the exercises. And I thought, this is why I've come, you know, and they were all absolutely, the enthusiasm and these children and they're sort of, it was just, it just, it was just great. It just opened your eyes and um, it, it, all the black belts were all rice farmers. You know, they worked in the fields and they worked in the country. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't city slickers. And yeah, they were the yeah. nicest, most humble, easygoing guys you ever met. They were so relaxed and they were f fantastic karate teachers. And they could speak no English, but they loved it. And they used to get hold of me and they say, no, no, you just, that's great, but just a bit higher, higher, you know, leg higher, higher. You know, I was flat on my back. Fantastic. And was that good for networking then, social? Or is that just good for your, just a good for a bit of exercise? Good for me, yeah. actually. That was good for me. Um, I, uh, the, the networking was a, a slow process. You know, it was slow and fast. I mean, you, you know, it, you sort of got to a, a sort of point where, where you met people and then nothing really happened for a few months and then you, you met some more and I was offered English teaching. I got English teaching quite quickly because that's how I, I that's how I supported myself was it with, with English teaching in the evening because the first pot of the first and second potters I worked for didn't pay any money. So the first potter, I worked for him for six months making things. I had no wages. So in the evening I did Monday, Wednesday and Friday, I taught English for two hours. And then I had a little bit of, I had a little bit of pocket money I dumped in Tokyo, which was a real sort of reserve, you know, emergency. But you, you didn't need a lot of money. You could live, you could live real cheap in Mashiko, very, very cheaply. Um, but after six months, I got, I, I, I had, I, I'd met a few people and I met this man and he was a kiln builder. And he said, do you want to come and build kilns for six months? And I thought, yeah, perfect. I'd love to build kilns. Because what I really wanted to do was build the Japanese climbing kiln called the Nabori Gama, which is a, a, a wood-fired kiln. Uh -huh. which the Japanese have. Uh, Nabori is the, the Japanese verb to climb, so it climbs up the hill. They have different chambers, fired with wood, centuries old, and I wanted to learn how to fire one of these. Unfortunately, we spent most of the time building another sort of kiln that was wood-fired, but not a traditional Japanese Nabori kiln, which was it was great. I, I, I had a great time and Tamaki-san, who I worked for, was a, was a really nice guy. The previous potter was, had got, he got a bit sort of, a little bit tricky. He was quite a difficult guy to work for. And uh, it was some, um, just, just get, you got into a few right angles, you know, it was just quite, quite complicated. And I eventually moved out and lived with Susan because Susan, left and went back to Australia and I, uh, all the students took over one another's houses. So 
when one student left, the house went to the next student, and then that student left and left it to someone else, and then and that's how it worked in Mashiko. Um, eventually, my house that I lived in, I took from Susan, was bulldozed for a, so that the road could be widened because it was only a tiny, tiny little four-roomed farmhouse. It was wooden, and it was it was properly traditional but it was in the way of a roundabout so it had to go which was a shame but anyway I uh, I, I moved there by then and I worked for Tamaki-san and he was great he was a lovely guy and I, we worked really hard and then he started giving me a bit of pocket money you know 50 quid a week or something I don't know what it was and he said yeah you know we had really good fun and he was he was a um a sensei, a teacher of the fox dance in the Japanese Omatsuri in the festival. And that opened up a sort of side of Japan that I, I was clueless about. And, uh, and then things got, things began, you know, they, they became exciting because Tamaki-san would, would try to uh, describe to me what Japanese Omatsuri was about and the festivals and the different folk dances that they had there and he had all the costumes for it and it was fascinating and he was brilliant he used to do this the kitsune which is the fox dance with the the, 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 the character in it you know the folklore dressed up as a fox with a sort of snouty little japanese japanese mask on and i have one here and uh, he would show me how he did it and he used to go off on tour at the end of the summer and get very drunk and do this folklore dancing. And, uh, and I thought, this is it, you know, this is great. And I, I, I learned a lot from him. He was a great guy to work for. Lovely, he's a lovely man. So the, the contrast with the, the wooden um, firing kiln is different to the UK mm. version. You, it, that was gas, was it? No, you can fire with wood wherever you are, mm. as long as you have a plentiful supply and as long as it's dry. And the Japanese were very particular about firing with wood. And their traditional kiln is a, is a climbing kiln called the Naborigama. But they also fired other kilns with wood that weren't, but weren't designed in that style. Um, in, in, in English pottery, you fired, well, in Stoke-on-Trent, you fired with coal. But you could also fire with, with wood. Um, it, it, it's been one of the drawbacks possibly of living in the Lake District where I am now is that we have so much rain up here mm. that firewood is permanently wet through. Yeah. And wood going into a kiln needs to be bone dry mm -hmm. because it, 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 you create steam and you, you create moisture and that's, that's not, not what you want. You want bone dry very uh, 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 heat-creating wood. So in Japan, we only burn red pine, matsu, uh, which created the most e e enormous amount of heat, 1300 centigrade. We could fire the climbing kiln to 1300 with ease. And we could have all the, all the cones, all the pyrometric cones flat, flat on the, on, on, on the kiln shelf at 1300. And that was... Tell me what those are, so William, those, those cones. Is that a measurement of the heat? Exactly. So the cones go, go, go up in a range of cones, 
autumn cones and they will have a fluxing agent in them and they'll be made for every different temperature that a kiln would be likely to fire at. So you'll have a, 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 a range of cones for a stoneware firing would, would start, stoneware firing will start possibly around 1200 and they'll go right up to over 1300 degrees and you'll have a cone for each of those 10 to 15 degrees. So the Orton cones that I use to fire here in the, in the gas kiln, I use Orton cones 8, 9, 10 and 11. And those cones only melt at 8, 1265 or 70. I can't, I can't remember what, exactly what it is. Up to cone 11, which would melt just under 1300. And that's how pottery firings, I said, it's a, it's a, so that's your, it's a practical thermometer. Mm. It's a you consumable, a new, you, a new one every exactly, time. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you, 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 the temperature gauge on the kiln is telling me that I've got a certain temperature on my pyrometer. But if I want to know more precisely how long I've been firing and what my temperature is really doing, I take a brick out and I look in the kiln and I look at what the cones are doing mm. and they will tell me when the firing's going to end not the pyrometer. I'll do it on the cones and test pieces, which is how they did it in Japan. They had, they had cones in the kiln, in the, in, the, in the climbing kiln, and they had test pieces. So test pieces are little bits of clay, rings, you can have rings with a hole in them, and you have a spike, and you take them out at top temperature, and you plunge them into cold water, and you look at the, the, you look at the, the, the surface of the ring. And the surface of the ring will tell you what's going on in the kiln. And we used to take these out of the kiln in Japan and people take them out of kilns here and it gives you an exact picture of what's happening with your firing. It's accurate. Much more so than doing it on a temperature gauge or a, you know, a, um, a controlled kiln or, you know, where you're just switching it on and leaving it. So when you're making so, these teacups for six months, was it an unwitting yeah. sort of choice, unwittingly choice, I don't know the choice of words there, but was it, was it something you wanted to understand the methods of building these kilns to help you, or, or was it you just fancied a change? Was it, was it a purposed choice to learn how the process of that works? Yeah, no, that, I wanted to learn how to build kilns. Right. To, to help it was you. all part of the process yes right. it's all part of the process okay so grassroots understanding you know learn the foundations yeah, yeah. and build yourself up yeah yeah and i i uh, there are only two kiln builders in mashiko there was tamaki tamatsu and another one mm -hmm. so to go and work with them was you know it was gold dust it really was and um i mean i'd struggle to build a climbing kiln now and somewhere somewhere upstairs in my office i've got a set of climbing kiln plans but it's for an enormous kiln that i wouldn't be able to build i mean it's it it, it 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 it's vast these kilns were huge they used to fire thousands and thousands of pots in them in the big commercial potteries in mashiko and the one or two of the kilns were still firing when i was living there most of them had gone on to gas but one or two of them were still firing with with wood right so tell us so is it that once that kiln's fired you can use it again and again or, or is it you're going to have to do alterations to it no no you use it again and again the 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 kiln over a period of time which is what's happened to my kiln here which is gone this year i've got a new one by sheer weight of 
of, of, of volume of heat going into it will start disintegrating. It will start to burn up because it, 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 they, 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 um, they just get eroded uh-huh. yeah. uh, and, and they fall to bits um, because they come under such, such an amount, a huge amount of heat. Uh, coupled with the fact in Japan we had a lot of earthquakes. Mm. So the earthquakes are moving the foundations around and if you looked at these climbing kilns in Japan, you would think, oh my God, how on earth does that stand up? They were precarious. And on the, on the firings on them, after two and a half, three days, we'd come into work in the middle of the night because you used to start a 12 o'clock shift and go through to late in the morning. And the whole kiln room, but you'd think, they're going to burn the whole bloody village down. It would be just a blaze of flame coming out everywhere as if, because it was desperate to get oxygen, you see, you were on a reducing atmosphere, so the kiln was just, flame was coming out of all the spy holes and, and used to go there, and it was, I thought, blimey. It, 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 you know, if health and safety store, <laughs> they'd, they'd shut you down, but, yeah. you know, that, that, I remember the one day where there was a, uh, one of the firings we did, there was a, an island off the coast of Japan that had had a volcano and it had erupted. And this was my second year. So this was when I was working for Mr. Shimoka, which is another potter. And he was paranoid that we were gonna get a really big earthquake. So we filled up 50 dustbins of water and put them all around the kiln, which it wouldn't have made any difference because even 50 dustbins of water wouldn't have put the kiln out. You know, we fired 15 and a half tons of wood. It wouldn't have made any difference. But he was paranoid about it. So that's in the one session. How long, so the yeah. session, how long is a firing? 92, so- 93 hours we used to fire for. Yeah. Wow. So that was three and a half days. And so you're all taking different shifts? Yeah, we'd start on a Friday morning. And then on Friday night was the lonely, the lonely uh, 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 watch. So... One of there was me and Sebastian Scheid and myself and, uh, to start. And then Richard came from Australia when we worked at Shimoka's uh, at Sensei's. So what would happen is that we did six... When I went to work for Mr Shimoka, which was the second year I was in Japan, we did six glaze firings and a climbing kiln. So that was a huge number of firings. We were very lucky. He was really busy at the time. And you'd start it on a, on a Friday morning and he'd go through to five o'clock. And then one of you would work from five to midnight. And then one of you would come in at midnight and work till eight o'clock in the morning. And then the, the Saturday you worked until midday. And then about two, three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So after the kiln had been going for about 30 hours, you started a team, three of you. And then on Saturday night, there'd be four of you because the more people came, the more you stoked. So the stoking was front stoking and then side stoking and all sorts of, you know, you get bigger and bigger and bigger as you went up the kiln. So by Saturday night, it was properly alive. So we're talking, when you're working on the kiln, you're talking someone, you, you, well, whoever it is, 
is putting fuel in, so putting wood in, but also stoking yeah. it to add push air into the kiln as well. No, 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 but you don't need to push air in because the air would be sucked into the kiln as you took the because it's a climbing so, because it's a climbing precisely water, the pressure yeah no, but but okay air would be sucked into a kiln regardless of it being climbing or not because it, 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 the secondary air hole where you took the bung out to put the wood in that that would just that would just draw in a huge amount of air from the outside the the, the the draft of the kiln was 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 uh, was uh, immense. You know, you could get the heat. The heat going through the kiln would would would, would uh, at the bottom of the kiln to the top of the kiln. I suppose was about five or six yards long, seven yards long. Okay. And it, that that heat went right from the bottom right to the top. I mean, it would the flame coming out of the chimney, which was only a. 10 foot tiny 10 foot chimney but the flame coming at the top of that was nearly as much again so you got a 10 to 15 foot flame coming out just blazing away so your job's regulating the heat yeah yeah very very much but you didn't just stoke it stoke it because the, the person in charge of that shift who was a japan one of the japanese workers well they were absolutely meticulous about how much wood you put in and how you put it in so you couldn't just bung it in. It wasn't like, you know, doing a bonfire yeah. in the autumn with shoving the leaves on it. If you put the wood in the wrong way, you knocked over one of the pots in the front of the kiln. And if you knocked over one of the pots in the front of the kiln, it could be, well, if it was a wood ash pot, it'd be worth a lot of money. But, that, I mean, I think it's just a bit... It, I, 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 that, came, that came in the second year when I worked for Mr Shimoka. And that, that, that really upped my game. That was a whole different environment because he was a, he went on to be a national treasure, mm. a national living treasure of Japan. Uh, he was a, a, a great, great, great potter and he was a, a wonderful man. And I saw his work in Mashiko after about six or seven months and he did a, a certain decoration technique that I looked at and I saw and I really liked. And I said to my boss, who was a kiln builder, Mr. Tomei, I want to go and work for him. And he said, well, you can forget that idea because you ain't going there, chum. I said, why not? He said, because he'll have lots and lots of foreign students and he'll be booked up. And he said, you won't, you won't get a, you got, you just, and he really laughed. And a week later, I said, no, no. I said, look here, I, I am going to work for him. Watch me. He said, right, okay. He said, look, if you're going to want to go and work for Mr. Shimoka, I'll tell you how to do it. I said, okay. He said, right, get on the train, go down to Tokyo. But you're not going to get in there if you just rock up and say, hi, I'm Will. I'm from England. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is not that is not gonna work you are dealing with formal a formal introduction right go down to the british go down to uh, your embassy so i rang up the embassy i said i'm going to see a man mr shimoka oh yes i said we know all about mr shimoka and they said, well, well, you need a letter, don't you? And I said, yes. I said, come down and we'll get it. 
I went down to see them then I went to speak to the British Council which is the part of the embassy and they were really nice and they said uh, yeah we'll write to him let's give a bit of background and they said yeah so they wrote to him in kanji and two weeks later he rang up my boss and he said you got an Englishman there and he said yep he's sitting right here next to me he said send him round tonight so on a cold December night, I pedalled round to Shimoka Sensei. And he said, come in. He said, I can't give you a job here. Oh. I said, why not? Well, I didn't say why not, but I was terrified. He said, um, he, uh, I said, I can't, I can't give you a job, but, and, and he said, you know, I haven't got the room and I haven't got the, um, space and I'm busy and I've got students anyway he, I said look you know I've, I've been here a, nearly a year and and I'm working away and uh, eventually he said look, okay ha hold on and he got a, the student that was going called him in he said right how many wheels have we got and Sebastian who was the German student he said well since you got this uh, he said, you've got one year I give you one year said you can start on the 2nd of January so and that was that was a that was an amazing opening so at that point you've been you've been in Japan a year at that point nearly a year okay mm. and so mm. you're then moving again are you you're moving from yeah. doing the building the kilns to yeah. then um, are, are you then still, what, what was the next stage? Were you training or were you just on a, like a factory line building, uh, making? No, no. So Tatsuzo Shimoka was Hamada Shoji's apprentice. So Mr. Hamada, who was Bernard Leach's friend, had lots of apprentices. He was the big Minge folk art potter in Mashikomachi. He went there in the 1920s to establish a pottery there. And he, he wanted to recreate Japanese folk, you know, what they call minge art, which was everyday pots for everyday people. That's basically what it meant. And he started this pottery there um, because he had the resources. He had clay and he had the wood and he had everything he wanted. And Mr. Shimelka was one of his apprentices from about 19, after uh, the late, middle, late 1940s. So when they'd all come back from the yeah. war, basically, that's when he went to work there. Oh, at the beginning, it might have been just at the early 50s. Anyway, he then moved next door and made his own workshop. And Mr. Hamada stayed there and Bernard Leach would go and see him and lots of people would go and see Mr. Hamada. The whole world ended up going to see Mr. Hamada. He became a hugely important part of Japanese pottery movement. And Mr. Shimoka was here. And I, and I, uh, I went to, 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 to Mr. Shimoka's. So he would have people going to work for him all the time. He had an apprentice who would stay with him for five years. That apprentice would be Japanese only Japanese and then he always had a foreign student so he had about 
over his lifetime, he had about a dozen, maybe 15 foreign students over a career of 50, 60 years. What was it about the foreign students? Like, was there a hierarchy? <clears throat> no, you just had, he either had one or two at one given time. Some of them stayed for a year, like me, and some of them stayed for two years or three years. He didn't like you to do many more than about two years. And then you went off on your way and you did... did. So if you, if you, if you went to Shimelkas, St. Says, and you, I got the job there, I turned up for work, I'd been in Japan a year, and Sebastian said, right, come with me. And I said, okay, he said, right, we're off to see the box maker. So I went to the box maker and the box maker said, right, I know what you want. He said, got a pen knife? And I said, yes, I've got a pen knife. He said, right, you're going to make all your tools for, your, for what you're going to do next week. So I made all these Japanese cherry wood tools with, with my pen knife. So basically, which you had to have to, to throw all these pots. So you made these little bits of Japanese cherry wood into kote, what they call kote, which was shaping the inside of the pots. And I made about three or four of them. And none of, they wouldn't let me go on the wheel until I'd made all my own tools, strings and needles and all these things. So that took about nearly a week to do all that, cutting away all these things, sanding them down so they fitted in my hand. And then they said, right, there's a lump of clay there. There's your wheel in the corner. I was in another corner. And they said, go down there. And Mitsuyan, who was a Japanese thrower, he was a, sitting next to me, said, right, I'm going to make one of these and you're going to make it. And I did it, and then that was it. He said, right, off you go. And then occasionally, okay, very occasionally, about once every six weeks, Mr. Shimelka would come in, and he'd go, oh, how are you getting on? And I'd say, oh, oh I'm, I'm all right, Sensei. He'd say, well, let me have a look what you're doing. And he'd say, yeah, okay, look. Look, do it like this, okay? Try and do it like this. He never said to me, that's no good. He always said, do it like this. He never said a negative comment. He'd always say, okay, but if he'd get on the wheel and he'd have a great big kick at my wheel with his foot. Of course, he had it, he'd have it going round the other way. So the way, area where he was kicking with his foot was where my leg was sitting stationary. And I had a footstool there, and it was wooden. And he always used to get on the wheel, and he'd kick this footstool with his toe, because you had bare feet in the foot in the in the throwing ring, in the in the th no sh socks on. And he always used to stub his toe and say, "Christ!" He said, "That bloody stool's there again, because you're throwing the wrong way round." And I'd go, "Sensei, I'm so sorry." He'd say, "Don't worry," and he'd be holding his toe and throwing these pots. He'd say, "Right, I want you to make it like that." That's how I want you to make it. And then he'd go again. And I wouldn't see him again. Because he works in a different workshop. You know, because you, you, if you're using it the wrong way, then did he not encourage you to use it the way the Japanese were using it? No. No, you, you, not, not, not everybody did. Right. Some people changed, but lot of, some people didn't. Okay. Some, it, it, it's real. It's, it's very difficult changing. It's the dot. It's you think, oh, you just straight on, yeah, but it's not. No, no, muscle memory and everything. This hand does this, and this hand does that, and they don't 
mix at all because of the direction. So his workshop was traditional, long Japanese workshop, long workbench in it, all the wheels set into it, dirt floor, no concrete, no wood, nothing, straight onto the dirt because the moisture kept the pots nice and wet so that it breathed all the time. You didn't have anything drying out unnaturally. It all, it, it was all on a sort of, uh, 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 you know, depending on weather, weather dependent. The roof was thatched. And then on the other side of the garden, about 50, 60 yards away, no, a bit more, was another building. And that's where Mr. Shimoka was with his apprentice. And he was in there and you only went in there when you were asked to go in there. And that wasn't very often. So at this time, are you repeating the same thing you're making? Yep. And then after six months, he stopped me and he said, right, you can make a sake cup. So I made a little sake cup called a Gunomi. I made that for about three months. And uh, the, 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 what they call a tokery to go with it, which is a little vase where you put the sake in and you fill up the... And I did those. Uh, not very well because they were incredibly difficult. The smaller the pot became, the more difficult it got because the more they weren't interested in, they were only interested in the sort of in the sort of balance of it. The form. They used to Mitchan used to pick up my work and he'd say, "Oh, he said that's that's too heavy," or he said, "Oh, that's too light," but he wasn't. So the shape was important but it's the weight of it. How did it feel in his hand? And he used to say, oh. but if I started making a mess and getting water on the bench next door to him, he went mad. And he used to say, well, cut, cut that out. I don't want that, all your bloody water clay on my bit of bench. He'd say, you work clean and you work like on your bit. He'd say, you're not, don't start spreading, because the wheels were open. There was no, no enclosure around the wheel. So when you put water on your clay, the, the centrifugal spun it all out all over the place. And he would say, about the first week, he said, you needn't think you're going to start messing up my workbench. Throw clean and keep it clean. In this time, in your mind, are you feeling pressurised or are you absolutely loving it? You're, are you completely addicted to what you're doing? Uh, no, well, there was, uh, no, there was no pressure. Because Mr. Shimok was making all the decisions. You were just a minion. You were just doing what you were told. And you, I sort of forgot, by, by the time I got to Mr. Shimoka's place, I realised that, you know, I... My time was going to run out, you know, I was on a, I could stay in Japan for as long as I wanted, but I realised that I, overall, I, I wasn't going to be able to live there. And I'd, that had dawned on me after about a year. I wasn't going to be able to settle in Japan. Some people settle in Japan, but I wasn't one of them. I wasn't going to be able to do it because it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard and it's not hard making pots in Japan it's hard just living the life in the nicest possible way the way of life and 
you, you're in a situation where you really do not take anything you ever knew before with you to go and live in Japan, if that makes sense at all. No, definitely. You know, no. you really are. And I've taken all my three children to Japan. They've all been to Japan at the ages of 16, 17, and they've all had a month with me in Japan. And the moment they step into the airport at Narita or the other one, uh, and, they, and they get on the, the subway, they think, right, forget everything I ever knew, because this is, you know, I mean, my daughter worked out the Tokyo subway in about three seconds on her telephone, but she didn't know what food to eat at the table first. She didn't know whether to go for the baked beans, the porridge, the custard, the cream, or the sake. Which one did she eat? Well, if you don't know what to eat first, you're gonna starve. So when you were in, in Japan, it dawned on you that this wasn't gonna be where I wanted to stay. So you were kind of in the, in your head, you were thinking, I need to suck in all this knowledge because I'm not willing to, I don't wanna stay here for the rest of my life. That's exactly right. Okay. You had to um, glean what you could glean. And I went down to stay with a friend of mine by then, I'd made great friends with a, with a couple who lived down in Kurashiki in South Japan, who I'm still in contact with every week now, every month. And he said, you can get another job here. And I said, how long? He said, three years. I said, five years. I said, yeah, that's quite a long time, Michael. And I'm never gonna get another workshop like Mr. Shimoka's. I mean, I left on the crest of a wave. You know, we did firing after firing after firing. You know, I, I was, I was really immersed in something there. You know, I, I was, I had everything around me that, you know, everything was clicking into place. I had a wonderful workshop. I had a great family. Um, I had, um, you know, quite lots of, quite a lot of friends by then. And it was a very, um, it was a positive environment, you know. I, 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 could, I could learn a lot quite quickly. But this was in another place down in South Japan. And I thought, am I going to start all over again with someone? And I, and I thought, I'm going to go. I'm going to make my way back to the UK, which I did via India and did three months there on the way back. Um, I was tired, you know. It was quite a strain because I'd not been back at all to England. So I was a straight stretch of two years away. Um, and I was, I was weary, you know, I, I could feel it. I could feel it. I, I needed to be, so, um, I needed someone to say, what are you doing tonight? And I'd say, well, I don't know, really. Well, come on, let's just go to the yeah. pub. Yeah, some creature I needed that for, from, I needed that familiarity. And I needed that, that sort of, um, where I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I was completely at ease. I mean, I was at ease in Japan, but you were always, you were not, you know, you were always on duty. And working at, at Sensei's was quite, quite high powered, you know, on a Saturday you'd work until five o'clock and then on Saturday at four, the apprentice would come in, the deshi would come and he'd say, see you tomorrow morning. So, 
right? Sunday, yeah, Sunday, you're working tomorrow. We've got to be here. And so it was no question of, oh, it's my auntie's birthday or, <laughs> oh, it's my grand doing this or, you know, it's no question of that. Seven so, days a week then? Yeah, for in the summer it was, yeah, seven days a week. But that's okay. Uh, you were learning, you enjoyed that. Yeah, and he was a great man to work for. So that was the golden years you were there? Yeah, go, yeah, he was really busy. He had an exhibition in London. He had an exhibition in America. He went away for three weeks. He had exhibitions in Tokyo. His apprentice would go with him. So he was in demand. He took him with him all over, all over Japan. And uh, the apprentice would sort him out, make his breakfast, make his bed, massage every night, shiatsu. Everything he properly looked after him. Uh, that 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 um, Yoshikazu was was like a it was like a manservant. Uh huh. He was on at his side for five years. At his side, if he rang him up at four o'clock in the morning, he'd have to get up and go. Uh, okay. He 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 gave his life to Mr. Shimoka, and they all did. They were all the same. And when you went back there and met them and everything, they, the entrenched feeling of respect that everyone, all of his apprentices, and I know a few of them um, I've met, because he had one for five years, so he'd have a, well, he'd have, you know, a dozen, 20 of them over his lifetime. And they were all entrenched in respect. And, and sort of an, a huge honour to have been and worked there. And the last one he had was a girl from Kyushu. And she was amazing. She was amazing. She could, she could have organised it with her hands tied behind her back blindfold. She was just absolutely on it. We all met back there when we did it. We went back for a, a, a reunion. Great people. So... Oh, Sam, there's a little bit of, there's two things there. You obviously, were you a bit of the apple of his eye? No. No. Okay. But he treated everybody the same. Right, okay. He treated all of you the same. Foreign, Japanese, his children. Two of his children got married when we were there. So they had arranged marriages. So his son was marrying a girl local. So Mr. Shimoka and Mrs. Shimoka used to get dressed into suits and ties and go off and meet the parents and the prospective bride. And the boy used to go with them, the son. I mean, he was a boy, he was 35 years old. <laughs> and he was quite, he was quite tricky. He was quite sort of uh, recalcitrant. And he used to be like, what, today? Yes, today go and polish your shoes. And they all used to drive off and they'd all get together and meet. And then they eventually, at the end of this sort of formal process, there was a wedding and they got married. So that's how they got married, uh -huh. arranged marriage. Uh -huh. So when did it, do so you're coming to the end of your time in Japan. Yeah. You, you knew that, you had a, you had a date set in your mind, did you? Yeah, he said to, you can only do a year. Right, and so yeah. you respected that. And at, yeah, yeah. coming up to the end of the year, you made the decision you're going to go head back to the UK. 
Yeah, I would never have, I would never have said to him, can I stay longer? Never. Because I wouldn't have wanted to put him in any compromising position where I, it just wouldn't occur to me to do that. It's the respect thing. Absolutely. He said a year, I did a year, that was it. I walked away from it. And then yeah. you come back to the UK. What, what was your plan then? I didn't have one. I thought after where I'd been and what I'd done. Uh, Chill out and watch some TV. Cross that bridge. <laughs> well, just just leave it because you're not you know you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to you're not gonna hit the ground running as they say, and I didn't. So I came up to the Lake District where we live now, and I decided I was going to make my base up here for better or worse. I had no reason to come up here than anywhere else. But I did come up here and I've stayed up here. And I thought, right, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start making pots like I made in Japan and I'll start, you know, do this and do that. And I had all these ideas and I sat down and I thought, actually, I haven't got a clue what I'm going to do. So I went right back to the beginning and I thought about everything I'd done in Japan and I started off by getting a little workshop and building a workshop in the style of Japan and and I had to source clay and do everything and, and I, I built my first kiln and everything and, and I thought, you know, everything that I had in Japan was either still digesting in me, I, it hadn't sort of hit home yet what I, I had or I didn't really know what I was doing because everything you learnt in Japan is it, like what Hamadan would say about Mashiko. Everything I do in Mashiko is what I use in Mashiko is from Mashiko. I can't transpose Mashiko to Cumbria in the UK and I can't take what I'm doing as a Devon Potter or in Stake on Trent and do it Wedgwood in Mashiko. That's how he would think. And I, I, I had to start from scratch. Also all my glazes and the wood ash glazes that I wanted to use with, the, with the, using wood ash as a flux. And I had to sort of work it all out and it took quite a long time. It took me a few years. Well, actually 33, because I'm still doing it now, you know. So it's, it's never ending. No, no. But so, so then you, you've obviously then your late district elements coming into your work, the the northern UK element. You know, you've learnt your yeah. your techniques and the kilns and the firing, the processes, making your own tools. How did you then? Because like you say, you start your own workshop. How? You know, did you come back with a little bit of money in your pocket? No money at all. Right. None. So you started no, again? No, I went, I went, I started again. I had a gallery in London. And they said, we'll give you a show when you get back from Japan. Hmm. 87, 88, 89, 89 I went there. And it was okay. It worked. And they said, you can come back next year. And I went there for five years. And then after that, I got another show up in Glasgow. I got another show in Edinburgh and I met people and I, and I thought, 
Maybe this is why I went away. Maybe this is the, you know, this is coming in. And as a, you know, I, I realized that uh, it's my time in Japan and, and that, 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 that learning and that sort of compressing it all into those two years, it, it was a great opportunity. And I, I, I came back with, um, you know, some real good, some really key things that I could, I could do. And, and, and I could have made pots in England and I could have made pots in Japan, but Japan, it gave me such a varied palette. I mean, I, I really loved it there uh, to come back with everything. Um, and I'm still going back and still learning now. I mean, I've, uh, when did I last go? Last year. So I went last year with our younger daughter, Araminta. Um, I don't know when I'll go again, but I, I hope to go back quite soon. So when you're in the workshop back in the UK, that's when they're experimenting. That's where you felt you could experiment with the things that you, you're yeah. being creative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, creative, uh, uh, Nick, up to a point. Not, not, you don't, you're, not, you're creating, but you're making. And that's the difference in just in creating. You know, you've got to create, you can create uh, pots, but you've got to make for a living. Uh-huh. You know, you've got, you've got to start selling. You've got to, I can go on and on and on creating glazes and working on colors and firing the kiln 10 different ways, but I've got to start making it into a into a manageable process. Um, you know, it, it's not, and that's it's not it's not a hobby. It becomes a full time job, and um, you know, I love making my glazes and I've getting my wood ashes and a bit local bits and pieces that I put into glazes. But uh, it, it's got to be have some sense of production about it as well. Um, and um, it's not it's not a whimsical process you know I'm not looking out of the Lake District going oh Wordsworth today I'm going to be Wordsworth I'm going to put a frock coat on and a stiff collar uh, forget it I've just got the bill in for the um, you know council tax and I'm going to go and make some pots that's what it is and I think Shimoka would have said the same he had a huge family to support. He had to make pots. He had to work hard, and he did. He worked incredibly hard, all the time, all the time. And I think that he put that into us. He said, "You know, you're not going to get anywhere unless you work really hard." And he was right. And potters in this country don't—they they work as hard, definitely. We all work hard, you have to. It's, you know, it's, it's a hard life, but it's, um, what is it? It's a way of life, rather than a job. Mm. So you're selling, you, you're selling your work in the galleries, are you? After these exhibitions, you, you are getting a bit of traction there. Yeah, I've got pots in, uh, I've got pots all over. So I've got pots in York, Blackwell here, the Arts and Crafts House. Edinburgh, uh, Castlegate, Cockermouth, lovely gallery, London, Bath, St Ives, 
Uh, that's where it is for starters. And then here. In, in um, Witherslack. In Witherslack. So when you say about, how, you, you return to the UK, um, uh, my, my question is how, how many years was it where you could survive, where, where you were getting decent money in to survive? Oh, crikey. Oh, decent money. No, that's not happened yet. <laughs> Breaking no. even. <laughs> you know... Breaking were, even. Were you having to pick I up part-time jobs and things like that, William? Or, or were, you be able to, were you able to concentrate solely on making pottery? No, I concentrated on making pottery. But I wasn't breaking even, you know, it's just by sort of hook or by crook. You weren't breaking... Well, you were breaking... I was breaking even after about 10 years. Maybe five, ten years. I don't know. It's difficult to evaluate, really. Um, I suppose quantity of work. When I started doing the shows at home, I started breaking even, possibly, because I started doing these home shows and sort of rolling up the carpet and bringing people into the house. And I realised after a short time that all these exhibitions were fine away and then in different galleries but <clears throat> what gave me most pleasure in the actual sailing selling of pottery was bringing people into my home now some people would say that's just a, an inconvenience and they get in the way but that's not uh, that's not the way we were taught about it at, in Japan because when people went to see Shimoka he always had time for whoever you were if you made the effort to do it properly he would spend all day talking to you. If you just rocked up and said, hey, can I see the pottery? He'd say, no, you can't. But if you rang up his wife and made an appointment, he would make sure his apprentice showed you everywhere in the pottery. He'd say, where do you want to see it? Well, we'd love to see your kilns. And he'd say, take them to the kilns. And he'd make time for you. And, uh, and I think that's when people started coming to me and seeing the pottery here, it was rewarding, and I, and I don't. We don't see. I mean, we're not we're not starved of people here, but we don't see a lot of people relative to we would say if we lived in a city. So we we rolled up the carpet. And we opened four days a year, every third or fourth year, a big show, proper big show, and people started coming. And they've been coming ever since. Yeah, so I met you, William. You know, we got that triangle, Dumfries, York to Manchester. And within that area, we draw about 500 people. And about wow. half of them turn up. Mm. We had over 200 here one night on an opening. It was chaos. The road was shut. For the sake of pottery, which is how it should be. Yeah, you like that. You know? Yeah. did. It was good. When did you come to a show here? Did you come to a sh last Two, one? Three, three years three ago. Three years ago, yeah. It's three years. Yeah. Yes, it. That was a small one. The bigger ones were about 10 or 15 years ago when they, were, they, when they got, they sort of got a bit out of hand. <laughs> a bit rowdy. Yeah. Potters, the potters got rowdy. The mad potter. Yeah. 
So people who are looking to get into pottery and things like that, there's obviously the university system. Have you got any specific tips? Are you seeing the youth do anything different to how you got taught? How they should get taught or how, how to do it? Well, sharing your knowledge in terms of being a potter, is there any advice you've got to someone who wants to get into it? Um, don't say I can't do Tuesday. <laughs> and don't say, um, why are you doing it like that? Because there's a reason for everything. And when I said in Japan, why are you doing it like that? They would say, that's, you know, don't ask that question. That's how it is done. Don't question anything. Just keep looking. Just keep observing. Because when you, <laughs> when you go to Japan, if you're going to learn to make pots in Japan, you know, there isn't the opportunity to say, uh, to walk into a workshop, I'd like to know the temperature and the felspathic quality of the top glazes that you've got in this workshop from the point of view of, you know, aesthetic beauty. That ain't gonna happen. You can possibly say, good morning, and then that's the end of your conversation. So keep looking. It's all about observation. The actual technical know-how of what I did in Japan was a cul-de-sac because Japanese potters all over and maybe all over everywhere in the world are not going to turn around and tell you what they've been working on for 40 years of their life in the drop of a hat because that's not how it works actually you know you've got to earn those points yourself so most of it was about observation um now art schools i'm sure are specific and they suit a certain genre of artists but if you want to make pots and you want to throw pots you've got to go and work in a studio it depends what you want to do if you're obsessed with baking pots and you only want to make pots and make your living out of making pots, get on with it. But if you want to experience, get off the train at Mashiko Station with a suitcase and go and find yourself a job. And they'll give you a job like that. Because if you go that extra mile, you'll meet those people who've gone that extra mile. And the people I met in Japan who'd gone there were like-minded people we all wanted to do the same thing and we all fell in love with it yeah you you've walked off the beaten track you've you've done things your way isabella bird isabella bird you're right there unbeaten tracks in japan one of the greatest books written as a travelogue on japan and it, uh, it, it it she went there in 1850 blimey six on a horse I mean, she to it before America opened it up, 1870, whenever it was, four. She went round on a horse. And I wasn't, I was, you know, not on a horse. But it was, that's it. What career advice did you give to your children? Do something that makes you happy. Simple as that. You get fulfilment, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just 
Yeah, if it, if it feels right, do it. Absolutely, I would. I mean, you know, it's, it, I don't know, my temperament wasn't going to be that I was going to make, you know, vast amounts of money out of my, my uh, chosen career. But it's a way of life rather than a job. And if you look at it like that, you can, you can cope with it, I think. That makes a lot of sense. Be motivated by the passion, not motivated by the mm. money or anything like no. it's a. I mean, I have seen people, you know, who have a lot of money, which is uh, not ironic, but they, they, they seem to have made a lot of money and then have great pleasure in turning around and saying, well, of course, the money was secondary. What I really wanted to do was make mobile telephones. Oh. Or what I really wanted to do was um, record records or something. The money was immaterial. It just happened. Well, that's the perfect scenario. But that ain't for, that's not for everybody because <laughs> you've got to work it out first. And I've never worked it out. I've only worked out how to make the pottery. Okay. That's the thing. And that's, that's where I am with it. So it's not going to go much further. William. Thank you very much for your time today. Hey, it's been great. Thanks so much. I've had a great, great chat. Yeah, been good. It's been good. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you've got any feedback for me or want to get in touch to help me in any kind of way, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, my email address is sid at mail.uk. And if you can share it, like it, comment, Send it to your mates, subscribe, all those jazz words. I'd really, really appreciate it. Hopefully catch you on the next podcast, guys. Bye.